Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's all about spending money this week, ladies and gentlemen. Spending it in the shops, spending it at the pub, spending it in the restaurants when they all open their doors on Saturday. And already there are predictions that pub tills will take in over 200 million quid this coming weekend. And it looks like the Prime Minister is going to join in with the spree. Not just because he's going to visit the pub, uh, but because he's already announced a £1 billion school building plan to rejuvenate the rather overburdened education system in this country. Uh, aimed at repairing problems and upgrading schools so they can better handle the growing number of pupils. And there's more money on the way as well. The Prime Minister will unveil even more spending plans in a keynote speech in the Midlands tomorrow, which we will bring you live, of course, right here on Talk Radio. First up today, we'll be asking former Tory MP and Talk Radio host Nick Dubois about the strategy coming out of Downing Street right now, including the beginning of a war with the civil service. Dominic Cummings has successfully picked off his first high-profile target, Sir Mark Sedwell the Cabinet Secretary and National Security Advisor. He's going to be replaced by a Brexit-supporting executive leader in a move that very firmly brings the power away from the Mandarins and puts it back in the hands of the government. That's got to be a good start, isn't it? Uh, After all, when you voted for Brexit uh, all those years ago, what you didn't expect was for top civil servants in the Home Office, uh, in the Foreign Office, uh, in all sorts of other departments of state uh, who would stand in the way of what it was that was the democratically voted principle of leaving the European Union. That's what we stand for here at Talk Radio. That's what we stand for in terms of any political organisation. Democracy is what we are all about. You don't go around telling me uh, that just because the people voted for something, they didn't know what they were doing. Remember when you used to be called racist because you voted for Brexit? Remember uh, when the people who said that if we left the European Union, it would all go to hell in a handcart? Remember all that? Well, guess what? They've all gone a bit quiet, but they're starting to make noise again. And if they're in the civil service, they're trying to stop it from happening. 0344 499 1000. Peter Hitchens joins us at 11 o'clock to explain why he believes marijuana to be the cause of a lot more trouble in society uh, than we give it credit for. And I'll be asking him for his latest view of the lockdown being lifted this weekend. You will not want to miss it. Plus, we'll be taking your calls as ever. You are, of course, the eyes and ears of the independent republic, and your views matter to us. Tell us what you're hearing, what you're seeing, and what you're doing today because this is the only radio station in the world that gives you the opportunity to tell us what you think. And we care what you think, of course, as well. It is another great day. Over the weekend, the Guardian's Sunday sister paper, The Observer, branded me the self-styled anti-woke talk show host. 
I'm quite happy with that. We've obviously got these people on the run. 0344 499 1000. The one difference between Talk Radio and The Guardian is that we're going up and they're going down. See ya. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, there are many reasons to rejoice this morning, although as I look out from high above Talk Radio Towers on the top floor of the building, it looks a little gloomy out there, I have to say. A little bit grey, a little bit chilly. I mean, you would never know we were about to enter uh, the beginning of July, uh, because after all, this would be normally when Wimbledon would be on, wouldn't it? But I suppose it does normally rain with Wimbledon's on. It's not normally this cold, though. We'll be talking about that, plus a great many other things. But let's kick things off straight away, of course, right now, uh, with Nick Dubois, uh, Conservative MP, Special Advisor, of course, uh, to Dominic Raab, and author of Confessions of a Recovering MP. Uh, Nick, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Uh, good morning to you, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Now, uh, Boris has been uh, in the news an awful lot in the past few days. Amazing interview that he gave to the Mail on Sunday. Uh, he's given an interview this morning as well to Times Radio. He's talking about spending an awful lot of money. Uh, he's talking about all manner uh, of plans to keep the economy from falling so far into the red that it never recovers. What do you make of that strategy, first of all? Well, I think it's pretty clear that they are going to adopt a spend and to invest strategy. And this is on an unprecedented scale. And frankly, the one billion for schools is just a starter for schools, let alone what else we are likely to see up ahead. Basically, if you look back to the financial crisis, what followed was the bankers were protected, the institutions of the financial institutions were protected isolated, if you like, from the effects of the financial crisis that many of them caused. Uh, and people uh, on the ground in the high street, they paid a price through the austerity program, as it was called, although, let's be clear, it wasn't austerity. It was a reduction in the amount we borrowed to fund everything we do. But that's for another day. Mm. What we're saying now is the, the government are clear we, as part of our levelling up agenda, as part of rebuilding the economy, we are going to invest in huge capital projects, of which rebuilding some of our schools is obviously a very welcome thing to do. There will be more of that $1 billion for schools, as I say, because that's just the first tranche for 50 schools. We're going to see projects galore. We know Boris likes bridges. Now, I'm not sure uh, whether he'll be building any bridges on the mainland, <laughs> but he's certainly going to be investing in a lot of capital projects. And that's what makes the most sense to me. I mean, we'll be talking to Peter Hitchens later on uh, in this show, and he's very much a man who thinks that the economy has been trashed and that the economy will never recover, mm. that it's going to be a terrible, terrible toll that we end up having to pay because we've had to borrow so much money. But for me, it's similar to a bank not allowing a particular company to go bust because the company owes them so much money. You know, you basically keep them going until they recover and they can pay you back because otherwise, what is the point of it all? You know, so it seems to me, as they did after the Second World War in the United States with that whole big sort of new program that, uh, that, that Roosevelt brought in, you know, this is a similar opportunity for Britain, isn't it? Yeah, and I think the big difference now uh, between this and what happened in 2008, Mike, is that the obsession was uh, and the need was to actually show you were controlling the budget so you could borrow money, right, relatively cheaply. You could borrow money as a nation to, 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 without paying too high a price in interest. That's all changed. What you're looking at now is a new world order where we're going to live with debt and we're going to live with debt for a long time with very, very low interest rates. 
so the government can afford to inject money into the economy. The trick is, are they going to actually invest it wisely? Are they going to actually invest it with sensible good procurement plans? Or are we going to see huge amounts of waste build up? I don't think so, because in part, that's part of the program of reform that we're going to see taking place in the civil service, which will be as much about driving value as well as about ideas. Yes, exactly right. And also, of course, a new front, I suppose, has been opened up as well um, by Dominic Cummings, who's been very clear from the beginning of his return to uh, uh, to, to Downing Street, I guess, um, that the civil service is still very much uh, in the crosshairs, if you like. We've already seen uh, the Home Office and the Pretty Patel situation uh, coming to a head. You know, that case, no doubt, will come up at some point later on post-COVID. Um, but now um, uh, Sir Mark Sedwell, who is generally seen as the head of the civil service, is gone. He's out. He's going to be moving out. So presumably from this point until the time he actually physically walks, uh, his power recedes. Yeah. Hey, shock horror. Um, (laughs) The prime minister wants around him people who will believe in his agenda and push his agenda. And that people we, we have to remember that we elect the politicians to do something. That is an expression of the will of the people, if you like, what we want them to do. Now, the civil service I I won't go so far as to say that they will always obstruct what a government wants to do. But by the very nature of the organisation, they're meant to remain, uh, if you like, neutral. But they cannot. It's humanly impossible to expect them to to remain impartial. In Sir Mark Sedwell, look at the man who was robustly behind Theresa May's attempts to deliver her vision of Brexit, which we all know was was confused and rejected. Uh, He even went so far as to basically refer to the ministers who objected to Theresa May's plan, the the David Davis, Boris Johnson's at the time when he was foreign secretary, as children, basically. So is it any wonder that we then expect this man to throw himself wholeheartedly behind the Brexit of a new prime minister? That was never really going to happen. And this, I think, is just a sign that the COVID um, epidemic that we we are going through now has instilled a new urge for reform and change, not just amongst the politicians and how they'll approach problems, but they're demanding it of the civil service. They have got to reform, not just the people, i.e. changing those people who are not on board with the government's agenda effectively, or are not capable of showing the reform and change that's needed to deliver it, but they also now need to look at how the very institution works. I mean, if you look at procurement, it's pretty, pretty, uh, it's an open goal to change that because frankly, when governments go about procuring things, A, they generally don't do it very well, but it never reaches out beyond, if you like, a small cluster of huge or going concerns. It's not innovative. It doesn't drive the change that this country desperately needs. Dominic Cummings is fully behind that. And of course, the Prime Minister is fully behind Dominic Cummings. Yes, exactly right. And also all this kind of talk of uh, all democracy is somehow now in peril because we all know that civil servants are supposed to be neutral. And now Boris wants to bring in a Brexiteer as a kind of chief executive figure who's not going to be a public servant. It's all going to be terrible. You know, everybody knows that Whitehall, for whatever reason, uh, has been Remainer Central ever since uh, certainly before probably the, uh, the referendum. Yeah, indeed. And and I worked for some of them when I was briefly in government. Um, look, this is utter tosh that we, we are threatening democracy. 
How can you be threatening democracy when you want to put in people into <laughs> positions of power and influence who run the country, who are supporting the government, the elected government's agenda? I, I find it a staggering argument that anyone believes we should have anyone else in those um, uh, offices within the civil service. I, I want people to be supporting the prime minister and the cabinet's agenda. Period. I mean, yeah. let's face it. Let's, let's face it, Nick. I mean, we've already had the House of Lords attempting to divert the government's agenda. We've already had uh, the likes of Jolien Maugham uh, and his uh, team of lawyers um, and Lady Hale and the Supreme Court trying to, you know, sort of derail government policy. You know, it's bad enough to have those two particular weapons in, in your armoury if you're a Remainer. But you can't have the civil service as well. Well, put it this way, it's quite clear by the appointment of David Frost. And just to clarify for people who David Frost is, he is a very experienced um, uh, diplomatic uh, man. He has been around political circles, but he's also had a life outside of industry. He is currently our negotiator doing a damn fine job on the trade deal with the EU. That's his position, right? He is not a civil servant. And shock horror... He's a strong Brexiteer. Well, that's that's a good thing, right? He's in the government. Well, thank of God for that. I mean, that you, the last thing you'd want is somebody negotiating with Brussels who's not a Brexiteer, because that's how we got to the trouble we had in the first place with with Theresa May, right? Don't don't um, don't draw me back down that road, <laughs> please. It's yeah. very painful. Um, but but the point is, he's now made him the national uh, his national security advisor. There's a thing called the National Security Council. And he's and Boris Johnson has broken the mold here because he's basically appointed someone um, uh, who, who isn't from within the civil service to do this job. It was a job that was held by Sir Mark Sedwell, who was also cabinet secretary. Two jobs one man shouldn't have, by yeah. the way, but there were reasons for that and the circumstances that uh, Mark Sedwell stepped into the job in the first place. So he's appointed. David Frost to one of the most senior positions in government you can hold, a close advisor to the Prime Minister, that does two things. It sends a signal that he's expecting to get Brexit done one way or the other as far as the trade deal is done within a matter of months. Great. Because, Mr Frost, you have this really big job to do for me. Let's have more appointments like that where we can introduce the drive and reform and change that is needed in the top echelons of the civil service. Because you know what? The government depend on the civil service uh, to deliver their programs, whether it's dealing with the COVID crisis um, and managing the, the, the crisis management plan to deal with that, or dealing with Brexit or other issues. And I think that the real challenge for the government is not just changing the people that we're starting to see now. We've seen it over uh, when we merged the Foreign Office and the Department of International Trade, we'll see it. We're seeing it with David Frost, and now we've seen it with Sir Mark Sedwell. But it would be actually to change the culture of this institutions, of these institutions, so that they are not risk averse. They're prepared to make a chat to take a risk to get things done innovatively and in the interest of the British public and at value for money. There is such a risk averse culture built into all levels of the civil service that the changes at the top we're now seeing could could change that. There are very talented people in the civil service, Mike, but some of them are constrained by practices and roots and, and bureaucracy that stifle their ability to give this country the very best. 
Yes, I accept that totally. I know there are some very good people in it. The trouble is, I think it's been allowed to kind of become more powerful uh, than it should be uh, because it's still, in, 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 at the end of the day, the servant uh, of the, the government as, as, as that government of the day orders it to be. And that's why it has to be in some ways neutral because it may have to do things which are kind of, you know, diametrically opposed from one government to the next. But let me ask you about the, uh, the Wednesday deadline because we've already heard from Michael Gove that basically there will be no Brexit extension. There are still people out there because of the way that they've seen, you know, uh, the establishment kind of break things up and, and and trouble make for people trying to make sure that this all goes as the people voted. Um, is there any chance whatsoever that something could be thrown into the works between now and Wednesday's deadline? No. Thank you. <laughs> quite, quite, <laughs> quite simply. Um, and, and, and actually, there was a time uh, uh, when I think... There were even very serious Brexiteers considering, because of the difficulties business would face, whether there was an argument in allowing an, a, an extension of an implementation period, slightly different from a transition period. You know, I think there was a case. They were worried business would not get on its knees. But no, why would anything happen between now and Wednesday? I'll tell you why it will not happen is because the, the EU are moving their position. They know they are in a game now where there is a deadline. The EU functions by deadlines. Mike, I'm older than you, uh, okay? I remember One of the few people like those, who is. <laughs> I remember those Maastricht talks. I, I remember how it was all settled in the last few hours, mm. uh, which, by the way, led to some of the problems we've got today. But it's always going to be like, what we're going to see is a series of agreements emerging that will give us a basic free trade agreement. That is my uh, guess. It will delay other decisions until a point further in time. But there will, I believe, be a movement towards a basic free trade agreement. The key sticking issues, classic EU, will be left to the last hours. Mm. And that is where Boris Johnson's charisma, his leadership, and David Frost's talent will probably bear us out to have a satisfactory free trade agreement that allows us to get on with the rest of the world as well. So this could be another great week for Britain then, Nick, by the sounds of it. Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a patriot. I'm an optimist, Mike. Uh, I mean, we're going to get setbacks. It's very hard, you know, we, 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 whatever, whatever you're, you're doing in life, I'm sure there will be some setbacks. Yeah. But basically, you can even hear from Boris Johnson in his tone, in his language, language now, this government, have, if you like, reinvigorated themselves. They're proving it by the changes they're doing. And if we get some of those setbacks coming along, I think they will take them in their stride. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, very well said and very well set up for this show today. Nick Dubois, former Conservative MP, Special Advisor to Dominic Raab, author of Confessions of a Recovering MP. You know, he's absolutely right, Nick. You know, of course there will be setbacks. You know, what life did you ever be born into where you thought there wouldn't be setbacks? At what point uh, did you think that every day time you walked out the door, someone would shower you with praise or shower you with money or hand you a free key to a free Jaguar, you know, or somehow your children wouldn't cause you any problems or somehow your partner wouldn't have a row with you or somehow you know the shop that you used to really like going to got sold and isn't there anymore you know these are setbacks right you're going to get setbacks get used to it and if you think you can go through life without setbacks you must be one of those woke people what are you doing listening to this show the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio Time to say a very good morning. Welcome back to Mr. Peter Hitchens. Welcome, Peter. How are you? 
Uh, not too bad, thanks, and not dead yet. Uh, yes, well, we are all surviving, are we not, uh, very much as best we can. Um, now, I wanted to start, not least because it's nice to talk about something other than COVID-19 and the bleeding lockdown, to be honest, um, with your uh, column this weekend about uh, Carrie Sadala, uh, who's a man that's been charged with these um, murders in Reading, because I thought that your, your what you had to say was, was something that I've been saying actually for a while as well, that there's an awful lot of these characters who have come into this country in one way, shape or form, but seem to have become sort of, you know, borderline criminals and, and borderline drug takers. Well, uh, some of them, it's not a question of, of coming in. Uh, many were born here and grew up here, but um, and the problem is not just in this country. Um, we have to be slightly careful, of course, because uh, the, the person involved has been charged, sure. but not convicted. So I'll be, I won't say much about the particular Reading uh, Full Regardens case, uh, if, if I may. The first thing I have to say always about this is that people will immediately accuse me of making apologies for or excuses for uh, Islamist terrorism. Uh, I have no desire to do that at all. I hate terrorism with a passion and all those who take part in it, and, I don't, and this is nothing to do with making excuses for it. Mm. It's just if we, if, if, we, if we treat events such as the Four Regardens events and such as, as several others which have taken place recently uh, purely as matters of some kind of Islamist conspiracy masterminded by a, 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 a turbaned a genius in a cave in Afghanistan, we won't actually protect ourselves against them because what you much more often find in these cases is that the people involved are in some important way deranged and have long records of drug abuse. And it's not just marijuana, by the way, that it is the most prominent drug in all this. Uh, steroids also seem to me to be involved. And most people don't even know, for instance, that Anders Breivik, uh, the, the, the man who conducted the terrible mm. massacre in Norway, was on steroids. And you only know about it because he boasted about it in that revolting testimony. Right. And are these steroids... Uh, that, that, that he also was... true of, 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 the, of, of Martin, the man who, uh, who, who, who took part in that, um, in, in that nightclub massacre in Florida mm. uh, again steroids and, and also Raoul Moat uh, who you may remember went on yes. the rampage so uh, in, in, the, in European countries what tends to happen is that people say oh well it's Islamist in the United States it tends to get tied up in an argument about gun control mm. uh, but in, in both cases it seems to me people are missing the point it, it, this is a, a quite, quite a new phenomenon uh, and it stretches across enormous, enormous numbers of, of, of crimes, and it is much, much more to do with people taking serious quantities of mind-altering drugs and becoming unhinged. Yeah. And well, I, it's, if we don't look at this, if we, if we, if we, if we treat all these things either as uh, instances, instances of terror or as instances of breach of, the, of, of a failure of gun control laws, I think we may probably not be protecting ourselves against a, quite a grave danger. Yes. Time. Well, I think if you look at the marijuana sort of conversations that, that people have now in this country, I mean, it's, you don't have to go very far walking around the streets of London, I don't know what Oxford's like, before you can smell the whiff of somebody smoking a joint. Um, certainly, I was in California not that long ago, last year I think it was, and it was quite unnerving to see all these posters advertising marijuana walking past or driving past marijuana shops, marijuana superstores, um, even uh, advertising hoarding saying, you know, um, for sale plots of land to grow marijuana. I had my children in the car and I said to their mother later, I said, it's very difficult to tell them that these things are bad if they're legal. Well, it is. And that's one of the reasons why I, I, I oppose so much the idea of legalising. And legalisation means, amongst other things, the thing being on sale eventually in supermarkets yeah. and advertised uh, on the television 
particularly. And this is this is particularly in the Proposition 64, which was the campaign to legalize marijuana in California. Specifically, it's a very long proposition too. If you read it, specifically uh, requires advertising to be legal. And you're quite right. Once things attain that kind of commercial respectability, it's extraordinarily difficult for parents teachers or anybody in authority to say to the young that this thing is terribly dangerous yeah. to stay away from it. Right. But it is. And I, it, it's not just in, it, it's, it's in, it's in, it, it turns up in an awful lot of, of what is nowadays described as low-level crime, what in my childhood and teens would have been seen as outrageous, but quite large numbers of seriously violent events which happen mm. in our society. And there's a very interesting a website called Attacker Smoked Cannabis, in, in, in which a, a, a friend of mine has compiled month after month after month, usually from local newspaper reports, the huge number of serious violent crimes uh, in which the culprit has turned out to be a long-term user of mm. marijuana. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that the, that the underworld, uh, such as, is, is it's not really called anymore, but certainly the drug gangs uh, of London and other parts of the country um, are that may not be only dealing in marijuana, but they're certainly dealing in marijuana. They're making a vast amount of money in it. Loads of it's being grown now in this country, uh, hydroponically in underground warehouses that, that probably make millions and millions and millions of pounds every single year. I mean, you know, is there a point at which you have to accept that it's impossible to stop and therefore you try to regulate it somehow? Well, there are two things wrong with that. Uh, one is that regulation doesn't really mean anything, and cigarettes and alcohol are regulated mm. and do ter terrible, dreadful damage. And people often say, well, if you're so against marijuana, why, aren't you, why don't you want to ban cigarettes and, right. cigarettes and alcohol? I say, well, actually, if either of those things were introduced now and were not yet in mass use, and there was a campaign to legalize them, I would certainly be against it. And, and personally, if, if I thought it was possible, uh, I would think it well worth seriously considering banning both of them. Mm. But the trouble with drugs is that once they're in mass use and legal, then it's almost impossible to, to ban them again. And attempts have been done, uh, have been made to do this in the United States and mm. in Iran, and they've completely failed. And that's why the, the, the irreversibility of legalization is why it's so, so dangerous. So that's one thing. The other thing, it, it can actually be controlled in two major free law-governed advanced countries in the world, that is Japan and South Korea. It is still a, a serious crime to be caught in possession of cannabis. And as a result, the level of use is much, much lower in both those highly successful societies. This isn't some kind of uh, Philippines uh, shooting uh, mm. drug dealers rubbish or death penalty for drugs. It's serious countries with serious legal systems and police forces actually imposing and enforcing the law, just as we used to do before about 1967, quite successfully again, but then that, there was a long campaign to get rid of that. So we, we still have laws against marijuana, which appear to be quite strong in this country, but in fact, they're not enforced. So well, it's practically decriminalised in this country, in, unless in, they in, find in, you in, with a, a huge bale of it in the back of the, of the car. A former head of the flying squad said as long ago as I think it's 1994 that marijuana was a decriminalized drug in this country. Yeah. Uh, and, and he should have known, it seems to me. Yeah, absolutely right. And what about the whole business of, um, 
you know, the way that somehow cigarette smoking has become more or less um, banned in on the streets of, of Los Angeles. Uh, but you can walk around smoking marijuana. It's one of those kind of paradoxes that we now find ourselves in, similar to the one uh, that I saw last night on Country File, where a rescue team from the Y Valley um, confessed that because of COVID-19, if they rescue you from the water and you're out of, uh, you're, you're, you're unconscious, they're not allowed to give you the kiss of life. <laughs> oh there are all kinds of madnesses. But I have to say, I mean, when I was researching the book that I wrote about the marijuana problem, uh, one of the things I looked up was the old newspaper archives about the argument about banning cigarette advertising. And the, many of the arguments used by Big Tobacco in those days are almost identical to the arguments used now by, by uh, campaigners for legalization mm. of marijuana. Uh, totally irresponsible and dishonest claims that, the, that, that there wasn't really any danger. Right. Uh, and it, at the mo- there, there is a, a very distinguished psychiatrist, Professor Sir Robin Murray at the Morsley Hospital in South London, who has come over the years m- more and more and more certainly to the position. You can't be certain because causation is incredibly difficult to prove that the use of marijuana is strongly linked with development of mental illness. And my friend Patrick Coburn, probably the greatest foreign correspondent in the country, was mm. the independent. His son Henry uh, fell victim to this at, at the age of eleven, twelve, at a, at a grammar school in Kent. Imagine any mm. more of a secluded, lovely, um, safe place you might think. But no, he was introduced to marijuana at school, and and has had for many years terrible. Uh, I'm afraid, irreversible mental problems yeah. that Patrick has very bravely written about. And he's pretty much certain that it was marijuana that brought this about. And I yes. think, I think we all know either. someone like that who has had a, a family member suffer as a result of, of really, really serious, because it's very strong now uh, compared to what it was in the 60s. Yeah, it, it, it may be. I mean, I've, I, also, I was contacted some years ago by a, a woman on, on Merseyside whose husband had smoked the supposedly milder form of marijuana for many years, and she'd f- been worried about it and he said no this is harmless and then one day he had actually gone completely insane and, and about a dozen police officers had to come to yeah. the house to, to remove him to the to the secure mental hospital where as far as i know he still is uh, so i i wouldn't get it's 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 a dangerous drug and nobody really knows who's going to be affected by it it would be extraordinarily dangerous to to make it legal and when patrick came out with his story about what had happened to Henry, he was astonished by the number of people who came to him, colleagues who he'd known for a long time, said, do you know the same thing has happened to me? Mm. Uh, it's a very common thing, but it's not spoken about. People are embarrassed about it and frightened to speak about it, but it's extraordinarily common in our society, this link. And yet, and yet in, in the world of politics and much of the media, it's, uh, it, it, it's treated as almost a joke, mm. as, as if it were doing their wacky-backy, just, you know, just a little laugh, nothing to worry about. But if you've ever visited somebody, as I have, in the locked ward of a, of a mental hospital, and, and, it, it, and you see and it's not, you see the amount of tragedy which is being caused, and many of these people can't go to mental hospitals because there's no room for them. Mm. They're, they're shoved out into the community, which is why they, they end up doing terrible things. They end up doing terrible things. Well, exactly it's, right. It's not, it, it is so serious, and people will not take it seriously, and it grieves me a lot. Well, I think, again, I mean, it's another conversation probably for another day, but the way yeah. that people are treated in uh, this country by the mental health sort of authorities oh, is appalling. I mean, like that's ter- that, terrible story, that terrible story from the, the Tate um, Modern uh, where the guy was sentenced just the other day. Oh. He should never have been out on his own. He should, just shouldn't have been walking the street. 
Well, I have to say, I did ask when I read that case, I did ask myself whether this person might have been taking some drug or other. But, of course, the, the police are largely uninterested. I often go into these cases mm. and ask the police whether they've made any inquiries into the drug use of, of, the, of the culprit. And they, they very seldom have. They, they just aren't interested in, in, in it anymore, I'm afraid. Mm. The, the, the mental hospital thing, though, it's another Enoch Powell disaster. Mm. I, Powell, everybody's heard of the rivers of, of blood speech, but he also made another speech called the Water Tower speech, in which he proposed the closure of mental hospitals on a large scale. And this was done. And of course, they were places of, of, of actually, and there were things wrong with them, but mm. for many people, they were places of genuine refuge and the old word asylum. Yeah for people who couldn't cope in the outside world and whose families couldn't look after them. And that, all that's gone now. Yeah. And this terrible, phony care in the community just lets so many people down. It's, mm. it's another monstrous scandal. That it's dangerous. No, I know. It's incredible, isn't it, that we talk yeah. about things incessantly which apparently don't really matter, uh, but the things that really do don't get discussed. But that's why you and I are here, Peter, to do that the exactly. exact thing. Now, let's talk about uh, Boris Johnson. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, my, with my tongue fully in my cheek, my hero, Boris Johnson, who's <laughs> going to spend his way out of this particular uh, crisis that we're in financially. And I think he's going to be able to do it. Well, you may be right. I don't know. I've in, I noticed that he used the term Rooseveltian uh, in one of his interviews. <laughs> yes. I noticed that Michael Gove, in a speech, a peculiar speech he gave the weekend, was also going on about Franklin Roosevelt. He yeah. seems to become the new uh, target of admiration of, of, of what used to be the Conservative Party. Uh, I wouldn't be too sure about that. I mean, the, the trouble with Roosevelt is that he tried everything he could uh, from the moment he was elected to... to to kick-start the American economy after the Great Crash. Mm. All these public works administrations and dams and all the rest of it, it didn't work. The thing which revived the American economy, I, I have to say, and it's quite sad to admit it, the thing that revived, revived the American it's the economy... the war, isn't it? Second World War. Yeah, I know. None of Roosevelt's actual attempts to do it, none of this heavy, high public spending by the standards of the time, actually did the trick. Yes, but I dare say that what, what it did do, though, was revive the sort of faith of the people in the country, because what it did do was provide a lot of work, it did provide a lot of jobs, and it did provide actually a reasonable amount of infrastructure. It may not have rescued the economy, but, you know, the highway system was built, a lot of the railway well, system was improved, they built the Coit Tower in San Francisco, if you've ever been there, it's a thing, of, have, great, yeah. thing of great beauty. You know, you, and it was a good thing that, 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 that it happened. Good. Things. I mean, it's all, it, a lot of it's rather beautifully described in the, that wonderful Steinbeck novel, The Grapes of Wrath. Mm. It was a good thing. It, 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 did, it did a lot of good, though it, it also entailed some t the government taking on a lot more political power than it previously had, uh, which, which, which people found worrying at the time and in, in, in retrospect. Mm. But it didn't do that much good, uh, and it didn't rescue a, an economy which had, uh, which had been crashed. And I, the, the problem is, and what Maynard Keynes, the brilliant father of, of, of intervention in, in slump-ridden economies, uh, advocated, was incredibly small-scale by the standards of what governments now do. We're in completely uncharted territory economically. Nobody really knows what to do or, or what will work. And, and I, I don't know. I couldn't, I, I couldn't say for certain whether it would. What I'm absolutely sure of is that there is a problem to cure. Yes, that's very true. And and what about the latest kind of um, little spikes that we're seeing in all sorts of different parts of the world? We've seen one in Germany in the in the slaughterhouse. We've seen one in Wrexham in a food factory. Uh, we've got California locking down the bars again. 
lots of southern states of America uh, seemingly having very high incidences of, of the coronavirus. Has that changed your view yet of how dangerous this thing is? No, because the figures we're referring to are, are cases or, or, or so-called infections. Uh, and as the mayor of Leicester said on, on um, the Today programme this morning, what's actually happening is, of course, we're getting much better at finding these things. Mm because we have a, a, a much, much more widespread system of testing, and also we have better methods of testing. Nobody knows how many cases there were in this country uh, back in February or March. No, no, a lot of them happened without symptoms or with very mild symptoms, or people simply didn't recognize it or mistook it for flu. Uh, and we didn't have any way of, in, in most cases, of testing people. So whatever numbers you come up with now merely tell you how busy we are looking for cases now. Uh, and you can't, you can't compare them with what the position was before because we simply don't know. The, the only really serious figures, and even these are flawed, are the figures of actual deaths. Uh, and they're flawed because I think quite a lot of people are classified as COVID-19. Yeah. Well, it's almost impossible to, to tally it, them up, it, isn't it? it, it, it but there's, uh, there is some consistency about those. They've, they've used the same methods, and those have been falling absolutely since April the 8th, and they continue to fall. And I think the, the argument that there is going to be a second wave or a spike is based on nothing other than guesswork. And Professor Hugh Pennington, who knows about these things, uh, who I think uh, works in Aberdeen, has said so that he, he's completely unconvinced that a second wave is coming. I think we should be very careful about panicking simply because of cases. Also, what are these cases? What, what, is, the, what is the state of the people who've, who've got the virus? Are they seriously ill? Like one doesn't hear much of it. Are they dying? If so, it's not at the moment adding um, significantly to the daily death rates which are provided by the Oxford Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine, which actually show on the day when people die, they continue to fall. So I would say don't panic. Yes, I think that's right. And I think probably because we're a bit more used to now dealing with it, um, if it, if indeed it was a panic that the original lockdown happened, there's no reason now to do it the same way because, as they say, lessons have been learned. Boris Johnson was uh, on the Times Radio this morning giving an interview in which he admitted um, that they got some things wrong, which to <laughs> me yes. is the first time I've heard that. He didn't say what he got wrong, but he admitted that there were some things wrong. Yes, I, I expect that in his mind they were, they were mistakes made by other people there rather than by him. Well, to be but, fair to him, I think Public Health England have, have been to blame for quite a lot, actually. Well, it may well be, but I, it, it, the, the ultimate decision to, to, to go into the, the, the panic was here. And it, it still remains the case that there's, there's no evidence at all that did the slightest good. Mm. So I, and, 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 and here we are. Certainly, I, it, those who want to, to revert to catastrophe, I mean, it's getting out of this is such a nightmare. And the opportunity that people are taking to make life worse because of it. I mean, I learned today that the pub that I went to just before the shutters came crashing down, uh, you can no longer go to it unless you make a booking. So right. It's not a pub. And it's, it's decided to take this opportunity to go vegan. <laughs> now, I, I, I have nothing oh, against veganism. But, no, and I, but I, I, I will eat vegan. But, but honestly, it, it limits my choice. Now, why? It looks to me like somebody had always wanted to go yeah. vegan down there. Never let a good crisis go to waste. And all kinds of uh, decisions which may turn out to be bad and will certainly make the world mm. perhaps a less joyous place are being taken. I mean, but are the pubs going to look like intensive care units when you go there with people sheeted in, in visors and and, and and protective gear. 
Uh, well, I'm not. I'm, I'm not going to. I'm, I'm, and if so, why go? You might as well yeah. sit at home with a bottle, frankly. Well, indeed. Well, if you happen to be in London on Saturday, which I dare say you probably won't be. I hope but, to be. Yeah. Well, if you are, then maybe you should pop across to. Uh, there's a pub not far from here where we're doing a live show from there, um, and you could come in. You could come in, and uh, I know you're probably working. It is um, a bit of a busy day. But I could. I could like buy that. you an orange juice, and, <laughs> and you can, can guest come and guest on the show. Yeah, well, let's 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 make a provisional booking. Okay, well, let's we're booking again. All right, well, the, the whole pop, whole so many of the pleasures of life are impulsive, aren't they? Exactly right. Let's Listen. go and do that. Not oh, I've got a booking at the pub at three o'clock next Wednesday. <laughs> no, I know. Listen, sadly, we're out of time, Peter. Maybe we'll see you on Saturday. If not, we'll talk to you again next Monday. Peter Hitchens uh, talking there about all manner of things. Many of you disagree with him on the marijuana front. 
Right, first of all, let's go on to the measures. This is what we understand. Now, this I've got to emphasise, this is still a changing landscape. We were expecting an announcement on this mm. on the 4th of July, Friday. Right. Then we got some news coming out, well, quite a lot of news coming out on Friday, just gone. We've already had some more news today. We're expecting a full official announcement on Wednesday. That's when we should know a lot more. So it is a changing landscape, but let's talk about what we know now. And what we think we know is that instead of a blanket, um, there's two things which some, some commentators called the double lock. The government travel advice right. was against all non-essential travel. So that, that and, and in fact, that still is. If you look at the government website as we speak right now, it is still advising against all non-essential travel, and that means holidays. Mm. Now, we're expecting that to be changed on Wednesday, but as it stands, it's still there. That's one aspect of the double lock. Okay. The other one is the quarantine that you've just mentioned. Instead of uh, it applying to anybody coming into the country from anywhere, whether they, whether they live in that country or whether it's us coming back from a holiday, instead of there being the 14-day quarantine blanket requirement, it's going to be country by country. Mm. OK. And obviously we are seen by some countries as having a rather high level uh, of coronavirus infection. So while we may be very happy to invite people to come from countries where they have a lower one, they might not reciprocate. Or, or is that going to be part of the deal? As we understand, that is going to be part of the deal. Okay. An example, so, so it's going to be, as far as we understand, same rules apply both ways. So anybody coming in from country A to us and when we go to country A. And a key example of this is one of the countries that we, the Brits, have, have find very popular and, and want to go to a lot is Greece, of mm. course. We're expecting a, uh, an agreement between us and Greece as we are with some other holiday destinations. But the Greek tourism authorities at the moment are not giving that the go-ahead. They are still assessing the situation precisely for the reason you've just said, that we in the UK are seen as possibly higher yeah. risk. So they might be welcoming uh, tourists from other European countries sooner than they welcome us. Yes, they've certainly intimated that, that people from uh, certain Scandinavian countries and possibly Germany would be ahead of us uh, in that particular uh, queue. So um, this is a kind of work in progress, I guess, for a while. We won't necessarily have a definitive on this for maybe a week or more. I think it might be sooner. Let, let's let's keep, keep stay tuned, is my advice to everybody. We are expecting a full announcement on Wednesday, so only two days' time. So we might have a lot more information then. But the key advice that, that we always give to everybody uh, from Lonely Planet, to anybody thinking of holidays, and this is the same, COVID or no COVID, absolutely important to stay informed. We spend hundreds, maybe thousands of pounds on a holiday. And sometimes we rush into it and maybe we get a nasty surprise for whatever reason. Even more important now is to do your research, use reliable sources of information, the, the government's own travel website, the NHS travel website, not somebody's cousin who puts a message on social media. It really, really is important to rely on 
to use reliable information before booking a holiday at this time. Yes, because it's not clear, for example, for me, I keep asking people about America only because uh, I've got family over there and it's not really that clear to me precisely what the situation is. I know that New York has put a quarantine in and I know that uh, Connecticut has put a quarantine in, for example, even for people travelling from other parts of America. But, I mean, as far as a UK citizen is concerned, uh, or even a US citizen flying back into somewhere like California, what's what's the situation there? Do you know? Well, i tell you what we know currently, and I keep coming back to it, it may change day by day. But what the industry observers are saying is uh, that the government is very likely to use what they're calling a traffic-like system, Mm. which will give green, amber and red uh, labels to a country that we can or can't or, or maybe can go to with certain restrictions. At the moment... As it stands, the USA, but there's no reciprocal arrangement between the USA and the UK mm. talked about at the moment. It might change, but at the moment, it's those com- those popular European uh, holiday destinations, which are the ones that are likely to be amber. It's worth noting that there's very few green countries around the world anyway, tend to be some of the smaller islands, and their restrictions are very, very fierce because they, they are still COVID-free or as good as. They don't want anybody coming in. So even those European countries are amber and countries such as the USA at the moment are red. But okay. it's day by day, stay on top of the information. David, thank you very much indeed. David Elster, writer for Lonely Planet. It is still a very movable situation, so uh, I would still urge you not to book anything uh, until you really know for sure that the place you want to go is going to be possible to go to without any real restrictions on what you do when you come back or what you do when you get there. Uh, That's definitely, um, for sure, worth working out. And we will bring you uh, anything that we can get on this, as it happens, of course, as the government decides to make particular deals and particular uh, situations going with air corridors, air bridges all of that mid-morning with mike graham talk radio so front page of the times this morning uh, says this the cash which boris johnson would like to inject into the uh, business of the schools of this country 50 projects of a 10-year investment with a further 560 million pounds for repairs and upgrades to schools in the coming year the spending will be aimed at schools in the worst condition substantial sums will be promised to those in the north and the midlands uh, downing street have said the first projects will start in september uh, where some further education colleges will be able to access 200 million quid brought forward from an existing fund to refurbish their buildings now anyone who's a parent would be able to tell you as i can um, that almost every school that any of my children have been to over the many years that they've been going to school uh, has had at one time or another a porter cabin style classroom put in the playground or put around the back of one of the uh, car parks because it's simply not enough room to, for all the kids to be taught inside the same building. Uh, my current children's, um, uh, my children's current secondary school, I should say, rather than my current children, they'll always be my children, I suppose, no matter what uh, time goes by. Um, my, uh, uh, their, their current school was due to have a refab at some point uh, over this period this summer, um, but it's not happening now because they ran out of money. Let's talk to Roger Layton, Chief Executive of Partnership Learning and Academy Trust, which oversees 12 schools uh, in East London, and see what he makes of it all. Roger, very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, uh, this is a welcome boost to uh, to our education system if the money, I suppose, is spent in the right way. Yes. Look, I'm not going to turn down money, and we desperately need improvements to buildings and brand-new buildings. Yeah. question is, is it going to be enough, and is it going to be sustained over time? Because big numbers sound like big numbers, but, okay, a billion pounds to be spent over the next year, that's really good news. Mm. 
But if I look back to the good old Building Schools for the Future program, which was launched in, back in 2004 by the then Labour government, which was designed to rebuild or substantially improve every school in the country, that had a budget back then of $55 billion over a 10-year period. Blimey, that's a lot of money, isn't it? Yeah. Now, it came to a premature end mm. six years later. Conservative government came in and brought it to an end, talked about wastefulness, which was probably true. How much of uh, the money was actually spent then? 124 schools were actually rebuilt. Okay. I'm not sure what the budget for that was, but it'd be mm. a tiny, probably no more than a tenth of the of right. the of the program. And if you look back at the most recent National Audit Office report from three years ago, they talked about a total of about fourteen billion needed just to bring schools up to good condition, let alone rebuild. Mm. So the big numbers we're gonna need here are gonna need to be sustained over a long period. A billion is a reasonable start for one year. We'll wait to hear what comes in the next spending review and is that gonna be sustained over a good ten year program. Yes, well certainly much of what is going to be spent specifically will be announced, I think, in the autumn by Rishi Sunak, uh, the Chancellor in his in his autumn statement. But um I mean tell us about the kinds of things that, that are lacking in some of the schools that maybe you run. I mean certainly what I can tell you about my kids' schools um, is almost every school, and I've had you know two lots of kids in the English school system. Um, uh, basically, every school that, that I've ever been associated with has had at some point or other a, at least one porter cabin classroom, which which the kids had to go into because there's simply too many kids and not enough classrooms. Which is which is another point to mention actually that the money that's already been announced includes the provision of new places, mm. which were needed anyway. Yeah, they were going to have to be built. So there's a little bit of jiggery-pokery there, I think. Um, but anyway... Well, listen, buy- we, we would expect that from any government, I suppose. But, I mean, the, <laughs> yeah, the, speci- the specifics, I suppose, of what we ought to be making sure of is that we hold them to account and make sure they do the right thing and spend the money the right way. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, so coming back to your question of, you know, what sorts of things are needed, well, first, number one is, are there enough places for the kids available? There's a big pressure on secondary school places at the moment mm. a bulge of pupils has worked its way through the primary phase and is coming into secondary so that's the very first thing second thing i say is lots of schools i'm sure you and your listeners have seen this have been added to piecemeal over the years and have got bits and pieces of what were supposed to be temporary buildings that are still there 25 years later um that are full of leaking windows and dodgy flat roofs All of that needs to be swept away and rebuilt. And there are a significant number of schools that have just come to the end of their natural life. Those, particularly those that were built in the 60s and 70s, Mm. you know the style, you know, often single-storey, flat roof. Um, They were never designed to last 50 years. Um, And they're, they're just now costing huge amounts to patch up. And, of course, they're incredibly inefficient environmentally as well yeah so a number of schools just need knocking down and rebuilding right and how and i mean if you were to do that for example what would you do with the kids because obviously you know um, as you say there's a capacity problem already and i don't know whether that's geographical whether it tends to be more in cities than it is in in rural situations but but i know there have been rural rural schools have been closed down and people have been forced to travel much further distances to get their kids to a school if they're not in a city yeah, no, 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 that's a significant problem as yeah. well. I mean, do you mean what would happen to the kids while... Yeah, I mean, if you were to say, bit, yeah, if you had to bit, knock down yeah. one of your schools, what yeah, would you yeah, do with all the children? Yeah. Okay, well, the, 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 the best solution, and we, we've done this because we set up a whole 
Chongsha brand new schools as well as rebuilding significantly um, current schools. The ideal way, and it often does work, is leave the old building in place, build the new school, let's say, on the playing fields. When the new school is built, you knock down the old and that becomes the playing fields. Okay. That's the ideal. The worst thing is temporary classrooms while you build costs a huge amounts of money um, and is not good for the kids or the staff either. So that's the best way to do it. Right. Sometimes not possible if there's not enough space and grounds around the city school. Or if you've already mostly. had the playing field sold out from underneath you. No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of that that went on under Major's uh, government, wasn't there? Uh, there was some of it. I think a lot less than people thought. Mm. Um, and occasionally, schools do have ridiculous amounts of land, yeah. actually. And it does make sense to do deals, maybe a deal with a housing developer, to say, look, you take that bit of land, right. we really don't need it, and that'll give us the money to rebuild our school. Yeah, I mean, my, my school, when I was at, at school, I went to a grammar school in West London, We had, our, our playing fields were outside of uh, down in Twickenham. Um, sort of in the shadow of Twickenham's uh, stadium, uh, which I think have now been sold off and are now part of the car park for whenever they have a big event there, <laughs> which is a bit unfortunate. But yeah. uh, but there we are. What about the, the sort of the, the disconnect between central government and local authority? Because I'm not clear, even as a parent, you know, who really uh, calls the shots in terms of, you know, who's in charge of policy in any given particular locality. Yeah, and this is this is an issue, I have to say, because... You do have a split of responsibilities and power here. So local authorities have the responsibility to provide the right number of school places, Mm. whether they are in academies, free schools or local authority schools. But local authorities no longer have the power they used to have to set up new schools. So a local authority cannot say, well, we need a new primary school in that neighbourhood. We, the local authority, are going to build it. We're going to run it. We're going to open it can't do that anymore it has to be either a free school or an academy so therefore you've got the local authority with the responsibility it can be criticized quite rightly by parents then if there are not enough places mm. around but they don't have the power to set up the school that is about academy trusts like ourselves um putting in free school bids to open a new school we've opened four in the last five years we've got another four coming um but that needs then hopefully sensible collaboration between the likes of our academy trust and local authorities we work very closely with the local authorities we work with and that works well but where you haven't got that collaborative approach then you do have some problems no but i mean would they have any say for example uh, would they want to have any say in which schools get what help i suppose is the, is the point because for for looking at this original sort of statement today schools in the worst condition will be looked after first now i suppose there will be competition for that uh, for that money and and you know the local authority might be either the best people to ask or they might be the worst people to ask well actually there is some good news there in that the gov- yeah <laughs> the government has um spent a lot of time and money over the last four or five years carrying out a really thorough survey of school buildings in the country hmm. so actually they should the government should know um where the greatest need is um, along with local authorities and academy trusts, they ought to be able to come up quite quickly with a priority list because we all want, you know, what, what they call these um, uh, shovel-ready projects, don't we, that you know, can go quickly uh, or, or into the ground and, and create jobs, get the economy moving. There really shouldn't be a problem with that. They should know between them where these priority needs are. 
Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And as far as the um, the size of schools is concerned, um, is there a sort of optimum size that, that you, for example, in your organisation like to have? Because obviously, you know, we know that private schools have much smaller class sizes than, uh, than state-run schools. I think everyone sort of accepts that. But, but where are we at the moment with the average sort of class size and what, what are you facing? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd, I'd separate out class size from school size. You know, you can have a huge school with small class sizes or the other way around. Um, but there is a long-running debate about what the ideal size of a school is, and there's a bit of a small is beautiful movement, you know, that surely it's better to have a small school where everybody is known by name and so on and so forth. Yeah. I, I've, never, I've never adhered to that, actually. I like big schools. So most of our secondary schools... Well, it provides a sort of preparation for life, doesn't it? Well, it does, and it, and it, actually, it actually gives great economy of scale it gives a budget for the school to be able to use to provide a huge range of opportunities that wouldn't be possible in a small organisation. And it gives the individual child a chance to mix with a whole range of different people, find a friendship group that's going to work for them. While, of course, the school needs to have a, a warm, friendly, small feel for each class. And you can still have that, can't you? You can have a big school a small, friendly feel in each classroom. Yes, exactly right. And as far as the sort of teacher-to-pupil uh, to ratio goes, um, we've obviously seen an awful lot of teachers, um, on the one hand, being accused of, uh, uh, of not being willing to come back to school to teach, but a lot of them you know, being uh, accused of taking the salary without actually doing the job. Is there still a kind of teacher shortage at the moment, or uh, will this kind of announcement make more people want to go into the teaching profession? Uh, there is still a teacher shortage in some key subjects. You know what they'd be, physics, maths, right. chemistry. Um, but in general, teacher shortage has died down for the moment because there's very little movement, very little you know, teachers moving from one school to another for obvious reasons. Um, and I think a lot of people who might possibly have thought of moving profession are thinking, well, that's not the good idea at the moment, is it? There aren't many opportunities out there, and you don't know which jobs in the future are going to be secure. And one thing you can say about teaching in general is it's a secure job, you know, with a pension at the end, etc. So I think all that has dampened down teacher movement. So that's helped hugely. Probably one of the um, lowest number of new starters this year needed because of that lack of movement amongst teachers. Right. And, and finally, if, uh, if you get the phone call from Downing Street, Roger, and they say, right, Roger, uh, you've got uh, 12 academy schools or 12 schools, um, what do you want the money to do first? Uh, rebuild one of my primary schools. <laughs> it's absolutely falling down. Right. Um, we do our best. We keep it secure. We keep it safe. But it really does. It's one of those 60s, 70s, and he's knocking down and rebuilding. Yeah, OK. Well, if we get them back on, we'll talk to them about it. Roger, thanks very much indeed. Roger Layton, Chief Executive, Partnership Learning, um, an academy trust which oversees 12 schools in East London. Um, I'd love to know from you as a parent what the school situation is because I guarantee every single parent who's out there will have a story about something that went wrong with the planning, something that went wrong with the building, something that went wrong uh, with the supposedly new section of school that was being built. I just don't think that's going on. However, uh, I have got a tweet here uh, from Skunk who's there's pretty much all six secondary schools in Telford have been replaced by new ones over the past few years. We are the birthplace of industry after all. Well, that may well be, uh, in which case you've got a lot to be thankful for. So I don't think that's happening uh, in many parts of the country, uh, but you may tell me differently. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
the River Thames, of course, uh, I don't know, but I'm about to find out, may have been the scene of some piracy uh, way back when, because uh, it's now time for a homeschooling section. And have you noticed how when you say piracy, you sort of say it in a pirate's accent? I don't know why that happens. But Alistair Lawson is Home Education Minister at Twinkle. Uh, very good afternoon to you, Alistair. How are you? Good afternoon. I'm very well. Yeah. How yeah. are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Thanks very much for joining us. I suppose we should start with um, the piracy period of history, because I'm assuming it was a particular sort of point in time when most of this went on. Yeah, I think there's a period of time called the golden age of uh, piracy, which mm. is perhaps a bit of a misnomer, but it's when it's the kind of period that we associate with the classic piracy out in the Caribbean, I yeah. guess. Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting period and you know, really evocative period that children of all ages love to learn about, I yeah. guess. Well, I think I think they've been they've had their interest peaked to a large extent by Johnny Depp and Pirates of the Caribbean, which is a great sort of franchise yeah. of movies, which which has probably whetted a lot of appetites in terms of kids wanting to find out more. A- absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they're so visual, those films. They're, they're absolutely brilliant and they can really be used for, you know, although they're perhaps not uh, hugely historically accurate, they can be used for learning purposes because they're so visual. Um, you can get children to kind of describe the pirates and invent their own pirates inspired by the sort of styles that are used in the films. So they're fantastic. Right. So are we talking about a sort of what kind of period? A hundred years, maybe less than that? What, in terms of the, the golden age? Yeah. I think it's it's sort of roundabout. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends. I mean, obviously, it's not not sort of set in stone. But yeah, you're looking around the sort of late 1600s, early 1700s, mm. when that sort of uh, activity was at its height, I guess. Yeah, it's quite an interesting period, though, because there are kind of a lot of myths and, um, and legends that have grown up that have deviated from from the true picture a little bit as well okay. um, and that's something that's quite interesting to get uh learners looking at too because most people would probably say if you asked them could you name a pirate they would say blackbeard wouldn't they or bluebeard or somebody yeah yeah or or um what what's his name in pirates of the caribbean Oh well, yeah. What the what the John, <laughs> the Johnny the Johnny Tep character? Well, yeah, exactly. But but Blackbeard was a was a real character, though, right? Yeah, I mean, interesting fact about Blackbeard: he uh, is known to have put fuses in his hair and in his beard right. and lit them. He was about to to go into battle to <laughs> kind of add to this uh, this reputation of fearsomeness that right. he liked. Um, you know, he liked to have uh, sort of infamousness. Mm. So that's a great little fact. Right. And were these people, by and large, from Britain? Because obviously knowing the history of piracy in Britain is pretty much the only real piracy that I know about, apart from what you might call modern-day piracy. Um, and as you say, it went on a lot between the, the ships that would sail around the Caribbean and, and maybe towards the top of uh, South America. Um, were they mostly British or is that completely wrong? Well, I think there are all sorts of uh, ships out there, you know, looking to, to get ahead and looking to, to make their fortune. And I think often the, the crews, I mean, it, it's an interesting one. And of course, it can get um, political depending on your definition of mm. piracy. But I think there was uh, an element of lawlessness uh, out there at sea during that sort of golden age. And there were sort of crews made up of um, differing personnel from from different places yeah it was it was was a little bit of a kind of a free-for-all yeah right because around the sort of coastlines of places like Cornwall Devon 
um, even around Su- Sussex as well. Um, I've you know there's a there's a pub for example. I don't don't know if smugglers and pirates are the same thing, but certainly um, there's a place called the Smugglers Inn, which is not a million miles from a place called Norman's Bay, and they used to have a tunnel, and I think there's, the tunnel's still there, which goes from the pub about half a mile under the uh, under the fields to the sea because that yep. was where the smugglers used to bring the stuff in. But I don't yep. know whether the... I think the smugglers were, were doing what they were doing basically because of the taxes against things like alcohol and, and tobacco. Yeah. Um, yep. were that, was that part of piracy or was that, am I barking up the wrong tree there? No, I mean, it's another sort of interesting misconception because people associate pirates with treasure, you know, the buried treasure, yeah. the maps and so on. But really it wasn't about that. And actually most of the, the booty or the loot that pirates captured was either food, clothing or alcohol. Right. So if they ordered a shipment of rum, they had to bring it ashore to sell it, didn't they? Mm. And, uh, you know, they didn't want to go paying uh, import duty or tax on it. So they needed ways and mechanisms of getting it ashore and getting right. it on the market. Okay. And things like walking the plank, did they make people do that? Well, that's another one. Um, I, I think it's, uh, there are, I think, one or two recorded instances of people actually walking the plank. But it's one of those situations where there's been a little bit of historic license, mm. a little bit has become a lot. Um, the treasure map thing is actually similar because um, there is no actual pirate treasure map that has ever been found. <laughs> and it's believed kind of association with treasure maps basically comes from the novel and, and the subsequent film treasure island yes so a lot of what we uh have kind of built around piracy comes from that story and and the way the characters were depicted in that film it's quite yes. interesting yeah it's interesting isn't it because i suppose as well if you were um a, a child at that time the stories that you would be hearing would be word of mouth stories rather than stories that were written down and there was a certain romance i suppose to being on the high seas because it was really the only way to travel around the world at that time. Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting, the, the sort of in, enduring romance of piracy, because, you know, when you get down to it, actually, it was um, pretty, pretty violent. And obviously, there were some questionable morals at play as well. Mm. Sort of hooks and peg legs and eye patches. That is not really exaggerated because we believe that, you know, the, the pirate battles were so bloody, there were lots of flashing blades and mm. they really lose limbs and eyes on a regular basis um often on a pirate ship the cook was also the surgeon <laughs> right he, he would with the knife skills he would uh, patch up the pirates right and were there any sort of were there any famous female pirates there were yeah i can't quote you any names at the moment but we do have um some resources on the, on the twinkle website that highlight that and I think that's interesting because that often gets overlooked as well and mm. there were yeah two or three sort of high profile uh, female female pirates that also had that sort of reputation that went before them for right. bloodthirstiness and mercilessness right and and so tell us a little bit about the Twinkle website because it's a home education um, resource right well we are one of the biggest um, educational resource providers uh, in the country and we, our mission is basically to help those who teach. So we try and offer resources, assistance for anybody that is teaching in any set of circumstances whatsoever. So obviously, normally that's primarily teachers, but we also cater for long-term home educators, people that choose to have their children outside of the school system. 
And obviously recently there's been a big element of supporting um, families that were thrust into homeschooling by the school closures. Yes. So I'm just all about supporting anybody that teaches. We have over 600,000 resources on our website. We've got tons of cool stuff and ideas about how to uh, teach pirates and, and hundreds of other subjects. So, yeah, that's who we are. And do you reckon, and I don't know whether you, people can find this maybe on your website, that there is still, you know, kind of a lot of buried treasure out there. I know you said that there have never, there have never really been any maps as such uh, produced or found. But, you know, if you were to say, I don't know, go dredging around the, the sort of uh, uh, the Ks around about sort of Mustique and places like that in the Caribbean, you might find, you never know, loads of Spanish doubloons or something. Well, you might have a nice holiday, but or you might ruin it. Well, I've nice... done that. I've done that, but I've never bothered looking for anything. <laughs> they say it's, it's, it's another myth. They say that there is only one case of treasure, any record of treasure actually being buried. Now, I don't know, obviously, if you buried treasure, you wouldn't go shouting about it, but they do think that, again, this is something that's been blown out of all proportion. And there is only one recorded instance of uh, of treasure actually being buried. So you might have a, a long search and ruin. Right. Otherwise, would have been a good holiday. Well, listen, I'll, I'll give another free tip away to anybody listening with children. If you want to make a treasure map, we used to do it when I was a kid after listening to Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. You basically draw what looks like a kind of, you know, quite shaky with your hand map on a piece of paper. Um, and then you fold it into four pieces and you put it into a saucepan. Uh, with some tea um, and yeah. you stain it with tea and you leave it there for a while and then when you take it out and let it dry it looks ancient it looks like it's been there for a couple of hundred yeah. years and you Did can fob it off on your next door neighbour and say look what I found yeah if you burn the edges it looks even better there you go now we're yeah. talking excellent well listen thank you very much indeed Alistair Lawson Home Education Manager at Twinkle uh, with a lowdown on uh, piracy uh, down in Hastings funnily enough they have uh, a pirate day where everybody dresses up like a pirate and walks around, which, of course, being Britain, inevitably ends up with a mass drunken session of people uh, just falling about all over the place. But it's quite amusing, and the kids quite like it, and they do a, 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 a sort of march through the town as well with drums and all sorts of things. And, of course, there's Talk Like a Pirate Day as well, uh, which is something that people do uh, in this country. I can't remember when it is. I think it might be September or something like that. But there we are. Uh, so I hope uh, if you had your children listening to that, they've learned a little bit about it. But uh, certainly, uh, as we've just heard, um, there were really no actual pirate treasure maps um, and lots of what was said about the pirates was in fact a myth but go and check it out on the Twinkle website if you want to find out more Talk Radio across the UK online on DAB and on your smart speaker the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.